0: Now yesterday on the program it being Valentine's Day we spoke to soprano Magella Culler about the greatest romances in opera Magella was at pains to be telling to tell us that not all operatic romances end in tragedy that was yesterday today is February the 15th the day after Valentine's Day. And, well, happy endings may now be nothing but a dream for some people. Certainly that's the case in one of the most celebrated romantic operas of all time, Madame Butterfly. Love, passion, emotional turmoil, betrayal and tragedy abound. The opera Madame Butterfly will be staged in the National Concert Hall on February the 25th and 26th, production from Lyric Opera. And right now I'm delighted to be joined in studio by a conductor for those shows, Anne-Sophie Duprell. But I was saying to you before we came to her, and sophie you were a singer. I, I believe you've sung um, the part of Chao Chao San, the part of Madame Butterfly, in the region of 180 times. <laughs> this is true, absolutely. It's a role that you kind of know then? I, I think I can.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I know it. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a fabulous opera and uh, I feel... I feel very very happy to to be working with such a wonderful team at the moment, and they're they 're gorgeous you know it's a wonderful cast and uh, uh we're we're having a lovely lovely time it's
0: it's it's an interesting story that has all kinds of parallels that you could put into any wartime situation. Just give us the bones of Bad, well, old, bad old Pinkerton and what he does to poor old Butterfly.
1: Well, it's a, the story is quite horrible in a way. It's it's the story of this guy who um, he, he buys a bride and then abandons her, and she believes he's coming mm. back, and she. Waits for him and it doesn't end well. So it's it's a it's it's a heartbreaking story, absolutely. And it
0: has a basis in in reality in a real absolutely. story, probably several real stories. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And you know, it's based of the on, on the book from Lutti and then they made it the a libretto. And it, yeah, it's it's really hard when you it's. Yeah, it's it's yeah, a whole story. It's an American sorry. GI
0: essentially. An American, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, during Going to Japan. World War II.
1: Uh, absolutely. And yeah, it's just you know, it's the the way you can see the exploitation, you know, the, mm. he just goes there, buys, use and go. Yeah. It's it's yeah, it's hard.
0: But for all of that, Puccini gives him some lovely notes to sing. Absolutely. You know. that's, that's <laughs> he may be a nasty old yeah, guy, but he has some lovely notes. It's
1: the genius of Puccini that to take a story like that, that is so horrible and so disturbing in mm. a way and makes just the most heartbreaking music and it takes you from the first bar to the last one on this journey and you you go you 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 go through every emotion and that's absolutely yeah. incredible
0: uh, it's it's very nice in Act One because they're falling in love and all sorts of promises are being, are being made. Maybe we're going to listen to, to the, a little bit of the duet from the end mm-hmm. of Act One. Maybe you'd, you'd set up the context here for us, how, how love is growing and how how desperate really Butterfly is at this point for, for love.
1: Yeah, she is and I think she this duet is very interesting because they never really talk to each other hmm. they are not on the same page he really wants her, he really wants to get on with it and she's just like okay let's let's take time to discover each other and so there is not much communication but at that point you know when when these two had Starts. She's been uh, rejected by her family, mm. so so she really she's very upset. Uh, so he wants he wants to comfort. He's comforting her, and it's it's very lovely. Yeah. And at the end, they they, they they you know they find each other. But it's it's
0: gorgeous music. And what Puccini manages to do is he, he almost has it like overlapping speech. Let's have a listen to to a bit from that duet towards the end of act. One. Angela Giorgiou is the soprano here as Butterfly. Uh, Jonas Kaufmann is Pinkerton, and it's Antonio Papano who's conducting the orchestra. Oh, if only life was like that. Uh, Angela Georgiou as Butterfly, Jonas Kaufman as Pinkerton in that uh, part of the duet from the end of Act One of Puccini's Mad Butterfly. And with me in studio this evening is conductor Anne-Sophie Duprell, who has previously sung the role <laughs> of Butterfly, but is now conducting the orchestra. It was very interesting to watch you as, as, that, was, <laughs> as, that, was, as that was being performed. Because you, you gave this gesture which explains how, you know, at the beginning of that, the kind of one, it gets higher, the pitch mm. is rising and, and you were putting one hand over <laughs> <laughs> over the other, but then you almost went into conducting mode uh, when you get into the the middle of it. There,
1: yeah, because it's just like so. I get very emotional. <laughs> Music for me is, is such a, it's it's an incredible, incredible way of expressing, you know, emotions. So I I just I just got you of to, away. <laughs> you have to go. You, you
0: have to go with it. But mm-hmm. I, I was asking you again before before we came to air. It, it, we often hear of. Uh, instrumentalists who've played in the orchestra who Mm. then come out front and become the conductor. The route from singer to conductor is is not one that I've heard of often. There used to be an awful question that was asked. Are you a singer or a musician? <laughs> Clearly you're both.
1: Well, I started as a pianist and I was a repetiteur. So I trained. I trained to conduct when I was younger. And then I went into, you know, singing and I, I did full time singing all the time. And and it was always at the back of my mind that, I you know, I always kept that... You know, mm. going in a way. So, but I'm, I'm not the only one. You know, I'm not the only singer that you know. You like Nata- Patrick Domingo,
0: I suppose, has done it yeah, as well, hasn't absolutely.
1: he? Absolutely, <laughs> and Natalie Stutzmann and Barbara Hannigan. You know, there are a few, few of us. But yeah, it's just. I think we have a uh, well. We. It's just we. Uh, certainly bring a different perspective mm. to it and especially to opera because, you know, this is what I live for. I, I live for, you know, opera yeah. and and it's just, you know, incredible I, to put things together. Yeah,
0: but I guess I'm, I'm thinking of the fact that, you know, when you're singing a role mm-hmm. uh, like Butterfly or indeed any role, you're you're thinking about your line. Yes, you may be listening to in a duet. You may be listening to the other part of it. You may be mm. listening to some cues from the orchestra. But you're concerned with what you're doing yeah, inside yeah, your body. Whereas, as the conductor, now y- you must have a very different view. Yeah, of it the is music. a very
1: different view. But I, I, have always have had um very uh, you know when I le- when when I sing and when I learn a part, I always go to the conductor score because I want to know exactly. What's in there? You Mm. know, who is the instrument that is going to play with me? You know, so it's always been, you know, something that I've done anyway. Even when I was on stage, I always went to the conductor's score and just to just understand how everything was constructed and, you know, how it was working. Right, so, so even
0: as a singer, you were interested yeah, in that, that overall yeah. picture. So if you'd been an actor, you didn't just flick through the script saying, with what lines have I got? No. <laughs> you read the whole play, as it were. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's always, I think it's, you know, the way everything is is built is so interesting and you understand more of your part if you understand more of the mm. others, because like that you're going to have a real journey and 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 it's very interesting and very you know I think you you can give more colors, more different mm. emotions with that
0: if you were going to be um anything when you were born, I think you were going to be involved in opera. I want to bring you back to the moment of your birth you probably okay. <laughs> you probably don't remember this. <laughs> But I believe, as you were born, this is probably one of the first sounds that you heard. <laughs> now, there is music to make an entrance to and there is music to make an entrance to. Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries is probably right up there with the very yeah, best music I to make know. an entrance to. How on earth was or why on earth was that playing?
2: Well, as I don't you were know,
0: born? I think
1: because my... my. My mother was listening to that too. You know, it was on the radio when I was born. Oh, so. it,
0: it was purely accidental that yeah. it was on. But I yeah. mean, that you were destined to to work and operate it. Would well, it I, I, I would have thought probably.
1: But music has always been absolutely the center of my life. I've never, I never questioned myself. You know, about you know what what do I want to do mm. when I grow up? It was just music. Music was the language. I. I felt connected to you know. I learned how to read music before reading letters, so that that's really my. I I, I know it sounds silly to say that, but I, music is my first language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no way. So yeah.
0: Also, though, when, when you're involved in opera, and particularly as a singer, when you were involved in opera, the acting is a, is an important part it's of very that.
1: Very important. It's uh, absolutely essential.
0: What do you need to play Madame Butterfly?
1: Well, you you need um, a lot of different things. You need you need to understand the um, the vulnerability.
0: Yeah, vulnerability. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and also the strength. She's very strong. She's a very strong woman, and and I think that's you know you, you can't play her as a victim. She's not a victim.
0: Yeah, because the, the the temptation is to think of you know this is the big nasty imperialist who's coming over to yeah. Japan and who you know the the, the American naval officer mm. he's got all the power. She is the victim, and you know no, she I has don't. no control over anything.
1: No, she she does have control, especially in Act Two, because she refuses you know every other offers than she refuses all the solution to to make her life simple. Because she believes he's coming back. Mm. So she has control. She has this strength and she has this, you know, willpower and this faith. So she's, I I don't, I really don't feel like she's a victim at all. You know, she, and she makes the decisions, you know, at the end, it's her decision. Nobody is Mm. putting that on her. She decides and she goes for it. Those
0: who know the opera will know it's it's, it's not a happy ending, that's Mm. for sure. What advice do you give to a soprano heading into Un bel vi, dì vedremo? One fine day he will come. She's singing.
1: Well, it, I don't really have any advice to give, but it's just like just read the text and and be truthful to everything that Puccini put on the on the page because there is a lot of information there. Mm. It, it Puccini gave us, uh, you know, a lot. Uh, he wrote a lot on on the score and every detail in, is in there. And the text, just have attention to the text and have this storytelling in your head. And, mm. you know, N'Beldi especially is is her vision, is her imagination. You know, she's telling Suzuki what is going to happen. Suzuki
0: being her. Yeah. her just one question before we go into Unbeldi. Yeah. Um in terms of the production that people will see in the National Hall, how staged is it or how much of a concert It's pro- to- totally, totally staged Costume, a- set everything. everything is there
1: Absolutely It's going to be amazing because it's a beautiful cast
0: Alright well let us go to Un bel di vedremo and it's Angela Gheorghe once again here singing the part of a Butterfly from Act 2 Scene 1 of the Picini Opera and I'll give out details of that Lyric Opera production after we listen to a bit of this That is the voice of Angela Georgiou as Madame Butterfly in Act 2, Scene 1 of the Pacini Opera. and sophie Anne-Sophie de Perel was the conductor who was in speaking to us about it before that. She will be conducting the orchestra at the Opera Lyric, or at Lyric Opera's performance, rather, of the production of Madame Butterfly, which takes place at the National Concert Hall on the February the 25th and February the 26th. And you can find full details on nch.ie. A recent photograph of Salman Rushdie serves as a reminder of the author's resilience and indeed of the injuries he sustained last August when he was attacked at a public event up in upstate New York. The picture accompanies an interview he gave to The New Yorker earlier this month. In it, he wears a black eye patch over his right eye and scars are visible on the cheek below. It's cheering to report that his smile and his gaze are as steady as ever and as direct as ever. Also cheering to report that Rushdie has just published his fifteenth novel, *Victory City*. Completed just before the attack, it begins in fourteenth-century India, where a nine-year-old girl called Pampa Kampana meets a divine goddess. Alex Clark has been reading it for us, and she joins me now on the line. Alex, it's it's practically impossible to 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 look at this book, to read this book, to to get the contents of this book without putting it in the context of that appalling attack on Salman Rushdie last August.
2: That's absolutely true. And I mean, you know, one of the reasons, not least when you read the text, is that it is a text about empire and the violence that is caused when neighbouring peoples go to war with with one another, the sacrifices that are caused. It is very hard reading it, but it was finished, as we understand it, entirely uh, Mm. before the dreadful events of of last August. In fact, I think Rushdie had had just kind of finished his sort of final tweaks and edits on it. Uh, We don't know whether he went back to it in any way, given the extent and the grievousness of his injuries and his medical and physical and emotional recuperation. I guess we, we would probably think not, but it is a start thing to read in that mm. context, of course.
0: Not least uh, of, of which, uh, in terms of being startling, is the fact that, uh, well, it's the fiction, I suppose, that this character, Pampa, who's a writer, she, she's, she's written an epic poem about a 250-year-old, a 250 year, year old, long narrative, rather, but she is stabbed in the eyes and loses her sight. This written, we believe, and we're told, ahead of the attack last August
2: yes that's right and uh, it it is a very um, gruesome scene in fact um although one from which she recovers with the most extraordinary resilience. Uh, she, in fact, composes a vast amount of this fictional epic, the Parajaya. Uh, after that, she, uh, somebody comes and takes dictation from her. She devotes herself to finishing this, this poem, which we are again told it, it is a made up poem, but it is along the lines of the Indian Mahabharata. It is a sort of foundational text of Indian literature.
0: I mean, I still can't get my head around the idea that that is there in the midst of the novel, written beforehand, and then, it, it you know, the, the events turn Absolutely. out into what happened in August of last year.
2: Absolutely. And particularly, again, as you, you know, yet another sort of aspect of that is that this is a novel about someone who does have the power of, as it were, foresight, who does mm. predict the things that are, are going to happen. It makes it feel even more, it gives it even more resonance, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I, but we, we should be very clear. We're not in a world of absolute realism here when it comes to no, Victory, <laughs> Victory City because Pampa, uh, Pampa Campana lives to the age of 247. Don't think that has been yes. achieved to date by anyone in the human race. But uh, the, no, help, the help no, of the God...
2: No, <laughs> And she doesn't really... Age very much either.
0: <laughs> that's Andy. Um, she she does get a little bit of help here. The goddess Parvati uh, is is all part of it. When does she meet that goddess, and and what kind of? I think we first meet her as a as a young girl. Uh, Pampa is she eight or nine years yes. old?
2: Yes, that's right. She's nine years old, and she has just suffered uh, a. Terrible loss on, on on many levels. Her uh, village has been attacked. All the menfolk, the warriors have been killed and all the womenfolk of the village walk into the fire and sacrifice themselves as a response uh, to that tragedy. In fact, already the sort of, I suppose, the humour of the book makes itself felt because the narrator who is telling us about this great epic and about Pampa Campana's life uh, tells that this we shouldn't really be surprised that we don't know very much about this battle and this sacrifice because battles were ten a penny in those days. They happened all the time. They were insignificant. And this is one of those. But she, as a nine-year-old child, uh, watches her mother sacrifice herself along with everybody else. And she then simply wanders into the forest and is is alone.
0: And there is some basis in reality here. Um, the, the trip was inspired by a trip Rushdie made decades ago to the ruins of yes. the Medieval Empire in South India. Was there an empire where such a woman is said to have existed, even if she didn't live to 247? Well,
2: uh, I've got to be honest, you're too hard on me in my knowledge of medieval foundation myths of India. <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right to say uh, Rushdie visited Hampi many, many years ago. There saw the ruins of the uh, the Empire of Vijayanagara, and uh, this is what sort of inspired him. Obviously, that inspiration took a long time to work its way out, uh, because what he does in this novel is go in for a sort of full scale World building. I mean, that—that that is the sort of great pleasure one hopes in the writing, but certainly in the reading of this book, that he creates a world. I'm sure that scholars of Vijayanagara would would sort of know the, mm. the the assonances and consonances. I don't myself but I can say that it reads as something that is so thought out every detail of this empire of its establishment of its long history over these 250 years before it finally uh, falls we know it's going to fall that's not a, that's not a spoiler I mm. promise um, is, is so is realized in such detail and with such an energy there is such an energy and dynamism throughout these pages.
0: Uh, the other the other aspect of this is you, you mean you mentioned uh, that gender is very much to the fore from the very beginning with the tragedy of the the men all going and then the women sacrificing themselves how does uh, how does Rushdie address gender issues across a very long period of time because we are talking about this young girl from the age of 9 to 247
2: that's right. Well, from the very get-go, when Parvati, the goddess, uh, in, comes to talk to, to Pampa, and, and the goddess is is called Pampa in in the local area, that's so. So the our character Pampa Kampana is named for her. She not only says that she's going to live this very long life and she's going to establish an empire, but also that she is going to fight to stop the practice of widows burning themselves and women sacrificing themselves. And so that that's set down very early on. But as you say, uh, you know, this goes on over a long, very a very long period of time. And we do see the sort of reversals of that Pampa Campana, who gets two brothers uh to be the kings, uh, one after the other of her of her the city and the empire that she creates, has three daughters and has to fight for primogeniture, has to fight to say these daughters should uh, should succeed me. She, she doesn't succeed in doing that. Um, and she there is a point of, uh, quite a long way into the novel really when she says she realises that what she had wanted to do, she's pulling the strings behind all the people who are in power but she herself wanted to be king. And of course she isn't able to be king. So it's, it's, it's difficult and I think One of the book's uh, strengths is that it really shows the kind of ebb and flow of power and empire, that when you make certain advances, they are taken away from you. When you 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 are often in retreat, that progress doesn't go in one straight line and that Mm. history isn't, as we know, linear.
0: But again, I know this isn't historical fiction, but we are in the, in, in the area of uh, fable and myth. Often when we talk about historical fiction, we say, well, the writer, the writer's saying something about the present day. I think that's possibly true or probably true in the case of the choice of myth or the choice of fable that's been told uh, here as well. How does, first of all, the gender issue will come to the, the issue of empire afterwards. How does the gender um, issue speak to today? Did, did it have resonances there for you?
2: well i think it, it does because you know there are there are lots of i mean it, it's to do with pampa kampana's absolute uh commitment to speaking out she will speak and she often puts herself into severe danger as i mentioned she has Three daughters. Mm. She encourages one of them to go where she wants in the world, and, the, and knowing that she'll never see that daughter again if, if that happens, and um, and the the daughter does, in do that, does indeed do that. And she is constantly encouraging women to be free. A lot of the alliances she makes. Uh, throughout the book, are with other women. Not always, but they they often are. When she has to go into hiding, at various points, it's it's goddesses to whom she addresses herself. It's a woman that who's uh, behind whose alcove she hides. Uh, you know, we get the strength that we get the impression that women to create strength have to make networks. Uh, and she is, you know, we often get the feeling that what she's doing is manipulating the rather less intelligent men around her.
0: And given that it, that Salman Rushdie is obviously a man, a man writing about this, did did he for you get that tone right? Did he get that type of dynamic right?
2: Yes, I thought so. But I mean, I, I think it should. What we must sort of say really clearly is that this is a very. It's a very funny book. I
0: was going to say A F.
2: sort of there's a there's a kind of framing around it. So we have a sort of narrator who only very occasionally kind of interjects uh, to say that he is he or she. But we we do kind of identify uh, that narrator with with Rushdie. I think with the storyteller, mm. uh, he has found this. The, the Jaya Parajaya in the in a clay pot in which Pampa Campana has buried it and it has. he is now explaining it to us and occasionally he will say you know this doesn't seem like she could have really remembered it like this and she doesn't seem to say very much about that um, but it's terribly terribly funny and that tone kind of pervades even when terrible things happen. I mean, one of the things that I think, you know, you do really feel very strongly is I mentioned the terrible first events mm. of Pampa Kampana's life. She then goes and lives for several years with a kind of sage in, in the woods. And uh, he's called Vidya Saga. And he's a sort of religious ascetic. And he's also an abuser. He abuses her every night for many, many years. And it's a part of her life which even later in the book she says she can't touch mm. she survives it she is the survivor of sexual abuse uh, but it is it, it has definitely yeah. marked and changed her and I thought that was terribly terribly well done
0: and finally then um, obviously, if we, if we go back to Midnight's Children in 1981 he was very much a, a, the star uh, the, one of the early stars in a trend that was called The Empire Rights Back what is he saying mm. about imperialism and post-colonialism here?
2: Well, I think there's there's definitely the idea that things will change and shift all the time and that you may see an empire for rise, but it will also fall that that is that is. Uh, but but I suppose also that there is a very distinct kind of. Uh, idea of sort of religious eclecticism and tolerance running throughout this book, uh, and it does uh, portray a kind of progressive empire, uh, if you like, and that he's clearly saying this is this is better than yeah. the constant invading and retreat and violence.
0: Yeah, and obviously that speaks to today without any without any trouble at all. Um, Absolutely. Uh, is is it a recommendation for you? I've heard I've read several reviews talking about a return to farm. Is it that for you? And are you recommending it, Victory City, Alex?
2: Yeah. Yes, I am. And one of the reasons is that on every page, numerous stories kind of spill out and they're just delightful. It is a kind of enchantment of a book. Mm. You, You are not bored on any page of it. And it is, as I said, very funny.
0: Right. Very funny and very interesting, it sounds like, from your your telling of it, Alex. That's Alex Clark, who has been reading Victory City by Salman Rushdie, which is published by Jonathan Cape. And just on the subject of writers and novels, Sebastian Barry's new novel is out this month. It's called Old God's Time. The story revolves around a recently retired policeman, Tom Kettle, who has settled into a quiet life in his new home by the sea. But his life has slowed down, barely sees his soul, time is filled with memories of his wife and family that is until two former colleagues turn up at his door with questions about a decades old case one that Tom never quite came to terms with pulling him and they pull him back into the darkest current of his past um, I will be talking to Sebastian Barry in a public interview to mark the publication of Old God's Time on Tuesday February the 21st that's at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary. it will be a live hour long show live music on the as well from Derry Farrell whose new album The First Turn is being released that very same week as well so if you'd like to find out how to get tickets for that event February the 21st public interview with Sebastian Barry go to the Pavilion Theatre website which is paviliontheatre.ie Winging its way to the Borgosch Energy Theatre is a production of Mother Goose with no less an actor in the titular role as the wonderful Ian McKellen, well known as an actor who has played the great Shakespearean roles from Hamlet to Lear as well as Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings films. We all know the story, I think, of Mother Goose, the proud owner of the goose that lays the golden eggs, but in Panto, as in life, vast wealth rarely leads to vast happiness. This West End production is going on tour stops off in Dublin next month with comedian John Bishop as the dame's on-stage husband... Mr. Vic Goose. More of that anon. The man charged with writing the script to bring all of these elements together is Jonathan Harvey, a legend of stage and screen, writing his first play at the age of 18. He was the creative force behind films like Beautiful Thing and the TV comedy series Gimme, 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 starring Kathy Burke. He is also one of Coronation Street's most celebrated writers, penning groundbreaking and award-winning storylines centering on homosexuality. Delighted to be joined on the programme this evening by Jonathan Harvey, a springtime touring production, Jonathan, of Mother Goose, starring Ian McKellen and Jonathan Bishop. How did it come about and how how quickly did you want to get involved when you knew what was involved in it?
3: Well, I have to be honest, I think I said many years ago, I'll never do a panther again. <laughs> They're really hard work. But when I was approached about doing this particular one for Ian, um all bets were off really it, it was a no brainer so um i i said yes immediately really so yeah i was approached by the producers who said what about doing mother goose the panto for and macallan and it's the only panto where the the dame is the lead character um so it, we like to think of it as the king lear of pantos <laughs> and um so i i, I I'd I'd seen various productions of Mother Goose over the years, so I just reread a load of scripts to try and get a handle on the story. And from then on in, we had about a year to get it ready. Mm. And um, it was just a case of trying to work out. I mean, it felt really relevant, because it's about a woman who's who's skint, who then suddenly gets a load of money. And... um, you know and that it feels very relevant to what's going on at the moment so um it was about them finding what was the best way to tell that story that made it relevant today
0: yeah that's interesting that you first of all that you say pantos are very hard work um i'll come back to you on that one but that relevance uh, we think of pantos great fun you know oh yes they are Oh, no they're not and shouting up at the stage all of that type of thing mm. how important was that I I don't think you're you're going into gritty realism, but that kind of that touch of social realism that you, you're talking about—the woman who's skint and needs to you know find a few bob.
3: Well, it of course I say all this, and you know you could say it's a comment on. Um the the monetary policies of successive Tory governments in in England, um, but actually there's a load of knob jokes and um, people falling over and that kind of thing. So, although although the basis of it is this is a woman who work who lives runs an animal sanctuary in a disused Debenhams store on the high streets, and then this goose turns up. You know, at the, at the end of the day, it's a panto, so It's it's jolly good fun for all the family.
0: Yeah, and the director here is Cal McChrystal, who I I believe he gives, it's a a traditional style of of presentation, if you like, where those, you know, simple jokes, slapstick comedy, and very much the straight guy sets it up and the the comedian gets the laugh. It's that style of, of play that we're talking about.
3: It's a bit different from that, really. I mean, Cal's known for his comedy and he's thrown the kitchen sink at this one. So every, every single character is as funny as they can be. And it's an anarchic knockabout evening. Uh, it's, yeah, there's, there's all the animals in the animal sanctuary. And he, even in the reviews we've had, they've all been singled out, these different animals, as as, as as how wonderful they are. So every single person on that stage has their moment to shine of being really funny. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not just like it's not John Bishop who's getting all the laughs, it's everybody, the laughs are, sp- the laughs are spread wide. Yeah.
0: Well I'm sure Ian McKellen would be quick to tell both of us that he can be funny too <laughs> and, and, and yeah. he manages to do it here I'm sure. Uh, to what extent you, you said Jonathan that once you knew that Ian McKellen was on board that was very important yeah. to you, does that go back to uh, the Corrie the days and when you wrote the character for him back in 2005 isn't it now, uh, Lion Hipkiss was that the beginning of the uh, kind a refreshing relationship between yourself and and Ian McKellen?
3: To be honest, um, I'd known I've known Ian about for thirty years. He came to see a play of mine thirty years ago this year called Beautiful Thing, and he uh, which, which was a gay love story. And he left a note for me at stage door saying how much he'd enjoyed it. And then I mess up with him, and so we kept we've kept in touch. And even though he worked on Coronation Street, I didn't write a single word for him. I, I he was there for about three weeks and I wasn't given one of the episodes I was fuming about that <laughs> so uh, you could start trying to redress the balance now all these years later
0: Alright so if, it, if, it's, if it's not curry and you can get him for Panto you're going to do it there you're back on curry, yeah. by the way at the moment did I see a tweet in recent times that I think you said something along the lines of you're back on the cobblestones
3: Yeah literally I've never left I ditched. we weren't allowed to go the writers weren't allowed to the set for a very long time because of COVID. Um, So they were trying to keep us numbers down. So finally we were allowed back on the cobble. So it sounded a bit more dramatic than it was. But no, I just... It's difficult when you're writing a show like that. You have to try and work out how long is it going to take Gail to walk from her house to her workplace, things like that. And you, you get a feel for it when you're on the set all the time, but when you're not, you just have to get it wrong, really. So, <laughs> so it's, hand, it's handy.
0: Yeah, I, I, so a lot more kind of... The technicalities that are involved there sound yeah. quite interesting. What what You say that Panto is hard work. What makes it so hard?
3: I think I think it's sort of like... If I'm doing a television drama and you stick in the odd joke, people love it. But your your job is to just tell a story. But when you do a television sitcom, every single line can be analysed. Can it be funnier? And if it can be made funnier, you've got to do it. And it's a similar to the difference between doing a straight play with a, with a few jokes in to doing a panto. That if every single, if any line can be made funnier, you've got to try and make it funnier. If you can get a laugh on every single line, you you know you're winning so it's it's the pressure of that really and of course every every really trying not to swear every person <laughs> in the room <laughs> has an opinion about what is funny and um and so every, every, you know everyone's chipping in but with panto yeah it's 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 just that pressure to be as funny as you can be fortunately it's a funny group of people and the director's brilliant so uh, it it it, it it all sorted itself out in the wash, but yeah, it's it's hard work, and you because you're telling a story, but you're trying to make people laugh at the same time.
0: Yeah, so there's the story, there's the making people laugh, and there's what you touched on earlier on in terms of you know the the, the story being that of a, a woman with very little means at her disposal until yeah. this until this wonderful goose comes along. You mentioned yes. Tory governments. Do when you're taking it out on tour like this. Do you start to tailor stuff to specific um, locations? Have you, for example, been looking up the the situation in, in the Irish government and looking for a few targets there?
3: Listen, there aren't any Irish accents in that cast, so I think it would be a bit daft for us to even pretend that we were set in Dublin. <laughs> um, so we, we'll just have to say, I think there's... We there's a few lines that we change to make them more specific to the region that we're in, just you know, to get a laugh. But no, I think it's pretty obvious when you see the sets that it's set in London. When when Mother Goose makes her money, she buys a specific building in London that she wants to live in. Uh so it it's we don't we don't change too much as we go on on tour, but the odd line here and there we will Will change to get a little laugh out of you,
0: and some people kind of raise an eyebrow at the fact that we'd be going to a panto uh, in in spring, in middle to late spring. But that's maybe not as off kilter as it seems on first look. It 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 has become a Christmas entertainment, but it wasn't always that.
3: Yeah, well, Ian's Ian's a real fan of panto, and he always says when he was a child, um the panto would open on boxing day and run till easter and often there would be pantos touring and originally when ian had the idea to take it on tour it was the idea was to just take it to venues that were they'd not i mean there, there weren't many pantos on in covid i suppose so mm. it was to try and take it to places that where well, there hadn't been a panto that year so um but <laughs> i think when 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 word got out that ian and john were going on tour People were biting their hands off, so yeah, yeah. it hasn't ended up being that. Uh, but it is now running to Easter, and I suppose it's not a very Christmassy panto this one. It is about eggs, so um, <laughs> it's it, um, it, the golden eggs can still be laid at Easter, and it feels appropriate.
0: Yeah, so. it feels that it works in that. Just in terms of the the television, theatre, film balance of things. I mean, you, you obviously you've, you've written plays, you've you're a scriptwriter for film and television throughout yeah. your career, um, and, and you you mention about how many. Adjective people there are in in a room when you're writing for television. Yeah, uh, has television achieved? I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of your fellow coronation alumni, Sally Wainwright and and Sarah Lancashire, and the, the success they've just been having with with Happy Valley. Has the the power of television has it changed now? Has it achieved a kind of a, a I suppose, a status versus theatre and versus film that it didn't have in previous times.
3: I don't know really. I've I grew up watching telly, and I've this. You know, I remember Boys from the Black stuff in nineteen eighty one. Just being, you know, a game changer in terms of TV drama. So I think the, the it's a, it's always been a classy affair, as far as I'm concerned. And and in terms of how I view the work I do, it's I have to treat I have to treat um, doing a panto with the same reverence as I would an episode of Coronation Street, and with the same reverence as if I was doing a play at the RSC. You know, it's for me, it's all, it's all art, and it's you're telling stories to entertain people. They it's just those, they take different forms. Um, but I suppose there's there's no there's no surprise that people like Sally Wayne Knight come from that soap background, where you have to get the stories right, or else people are going to turn the tellys off. So um, yeah, it's, it's no surprise to me that she cuts her teeth. On shows like Curry,
0: yeah. Well, listen, thanks so much, Jonathan, for sharing your thoughts with us this evening. That's Jonathan Harvey. Mother Goose will be at the Gosh Energy Theatre in Dublin from the 22nd through until the 26th of March. Tickets on ticketmaster.ie. For 25 years, the artist Claire Langan has been making films that explore the planet and our place in it. Beautiful haunting films like The Floating World, The Winter of Thirteen Storms and The Heart of a Tree, works of art which have represented Ireland at international biennales. This Saturday, a new exhibition of her photographs. At the Gates of Silent Memory opens at the Lewin Gallery in Athlone. Like Claire's films, these images are created in locations as various as Kerry, Iceland, Dubai, and the island of Montserrat. Delighted that Claire Langan joins us now on the line. And we will Hi, tweet. Sean. How Mike. are you, Claire? Good to speak with you this evening. I'm just going to tell people that we will tweet images as we're going along here at RTE Arena if you want to see the images uh, that Claire and I will be talking about. But I'm going to start with titles. I mean, those titles that I read out at the top, Claire: The Floating World, The Winter of Thirteen Storms, The Heart of a Tree. Great titles for novels, great titles for poems, all of them. Something wonderfully lyrical about them. And you have it again here in "At The Gates of Silent Memory. Explain the title to me.
4: Yes, uh, that that title was um, when I discussed with uh, Eamon Maxwell, the curator of the show, um, when we were discussing what we were going to put into it. Uh, the first thing that came to his mind was this title, "At the Gates of Silent Memory," which uh, is a as, as a title of a song on an album called "The Fields of by the Fields of Nephilim," yeah. and it's an album that that is about the space between heaven and earth, and it it, it completely. In a way, describes what this show is about. So um, that is where that one comes from.
0: <laughs> and did it speak to you? I, I know that you sent him over a thousand images when all of this was yeah. was being spoken about. Did it speak? Did that title speak to you in some ways in the in the photographs that you went went and ahead and chose, or that you had been thinking about? What did it say to you that made you jump at it?
4: I think there's a kind of an ambiguity about it um, and it's, it, it sort of feels that it's sort of between spaces and between mm. worlds. And I think, I think in a way that a lot of my work does feel like it's between, between worlds, whether they're post-apocalyptic worlds or futuristic worlds or um, speculative fiction about uh, future worlds. You know, I think there's something um, in it that, that resonated with, with the imagery in general.
0: Yeah, we're certainly in an in-between space of some kind in the first image that I'm going to tweet here Uh, at RT Arena if you want to see these images. Springs Hotel Logbooks 2007 uh, is the image that Claire Langan is going to speak to us about now. This is from Montserrat, is it?
4: Yes, um that's correct. So so I had um I guess I had had a in real interest when I, I saw a documentary about um the town of Plymouth which was um destroyed by a volcano in I think it was the the mid nineties mm. and it spoke to me as being very much a modern day Pompeii with these ashen covered houses and interiors um, so I went there kind of on a recce in photography recce in two thousand and seven um, with my uh, my then Hasselblad X Xpant, uh, camera, and um, you know what what we see in these in these photographs was um, basically in the in the exclusion zone, and it literally is a world that's been covered in ash. And um, when I went. You know, I, I went back there in 2012, but I had to wait that many years for the volcano to calm down because it started erupting when we were there, and the, basically it, it, it was erupting for yeah. another seven or eight years. And the So specifics- when I went back, all of this had disappeared. You know.
0: Mm and I guess that's the silent memory aspect of what you're talking about in the, yes. in the exhibition's title but the specifics of what we're looking at here I mean they could be chimney yes. pots they could be books they yep. could be anything mm-hmm. covered in ash do you want to tell us what they, what they are?
4: Um, I'm calling them log books. It was in a sort of behind the reception of a hotel mm. and um, there were keys hanging on the wall and then there were all these books and I guess it was, you know, pre pre the computerized uh, day. So they, they could have been, um, you know, guest books, uh, uh, just accountant books, but they there's a real sense of, of, of um, the books and paper about them, but they almost look solidified like a sculpture, you know? Yeah. Um, and, even even when you were there looking at them you know
0: yeah and there's a real sense of what you want to know looking at the pictures what 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 does it say inside those books you almost expect that you yeah. look inside and and somehow find find out the story of the the story of the of the volcano er, eruption itself um yes. scale is an important as let me let me actually go to another image and and you can talk to me about scale as we're looking at this i'm going to tweet Cocoon uh, now at RTE mm-hmm. Arena if you want to see the image Cocoon. Just talk to me about scale, particularly of this. And This is almost like a, a mother and daughter in a womb. That's what it looks like in many yes. ways. And they're in that kind and, of yes. fetal position. Um, tell me about mm-hmm. the size of this photograph.
4: OK, so the size of the photograph in the show is 120 centimetres by 80 centimetres. And it... Um, it's actually taken. Um, it was part. It was you know. I was there and I was shooting um, a, a film for uh, Johan Johansson, Flight from the City, and um, we. I shot it with my friend Tristan and her daughter Leila, who are in the film, um, and they're in this image as well. Mm. So this was a scene that we sort of did as an aside, and um, it's actually in Reykjavik itself, um, and it's it's a. It's the kind of a natural spring um, foot bath <laughs> um, on, on on the pier in Reykjavik. So it's got natural thermal um, w- water in it. So my my friend and her daughter managed to squish into this um, kind of almost look like a, you know, sort of like a pestle and mortar. It was like a, a granite um uh, circular um uh, hole mm. um that um uh was hot water but um so in in you know and there is this womb like feeling to it and yep. there is this cocoon type feeling and it does relate to some of the other images then in the show which which have a very kind of intimate uh, yes. feel about them. In, as well.
0: Intimate feel to them as well. And and you I mean it, it, to put it in old money, we're talking about, you know, four, five and six feet uh the some of these pictures yes. are which is you know yes. it's it's quite quite a large scale that we're talking about. I'm, yes. I'm moving yes. on now I'm moving on now to an image called um, the heart of a tree. One, you mm-hmm. made a film in 2020 called The Heart of a Tree. I presume is this image uh, still taken from that? We, we at Horta no. Arena. No, it's not. Well,
4: it's I. It, it's it's a photograph. It is a photograph um, mm. taken uh, during the shoot. I, I suppose understand. still it yeah. just distinctly would be a still from the film yeah. but it is a scene in the film so i suppose um in conjunction with shooting um i took photographs as well so this is one of the photographs and uh in in this um it was shot shot again in iceland and in the heart of the icelandic highlands and um and it's it's very again actually it's 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 a place in a way between worlds because it's on the It's sort of right in the centre where the two, um, uh, the Eurasian and the North American tectonic plates meet and it's sort of pushed up these mountains that used to be um, uh, a ski slope, but they no longer, now that the snow has melted, there's no longer... um, uh, snow there but um th- th- and, so, this- f- and
0: just for people who aren't who aren't, mm-hmm. aren't seeing the image I, I should it is that as you said it, it's a it's a man I presume it's a man it's a figure anyway yes. a human figure yes. walking along the kind of the top of these mountains that were caused by that uh, those plates rubbing together and kind of forcing mm-hmm. the, the land yeah. up into the air the scale is extraordinary here as well i yeah, mean the this- scale of the man yeah. against the landscape or the person against the landscape
4: absolutely yeah and it was extraordinary and um There were actually there were actually a number of sort of they were volcanic hills. And if you can imagine, we were on another volcanic volcanic hill quite far from them, a couple of kilometers from them. And um, I was shooting two cameras myself on one, Robbie Ryan on the other. And I was also taking photographs. Um, So, you know, we we had walkie talkie. So. The, the, the performer, Eric, was really quite, quite far away. <laughs> and um, it's sort of happening. There's steam coming from behind the mountain. It's, it's, and it was incredibly windy up there. And he's carrying, the dancers were carrying these large balloons on their back. And, and, and the idea of the film and the, the, the project, the, the photograph, is that it was in a, a, a world that no longer had trees and sort of air and was like the new gold. So these were, we called them the steam collectors. So they were wandering over these volcanic hills with these huge three foot wide balloons on their back. (laughs) So there is, you know, I guess it's a speculative fiction in the sense that it's thinking of a, a possible future world without trees. And there's a sort of a disorientation as well. In that is it another planet is it earth yeah. you know we're not really sure
0: yeah that in between space is there again um yes. one, one final image that I'll just put up as as we finish up Claire it's it, this is alchemy one and a beautiful yeah. embrace here mm-hmm. Maybe describe yeah. describe the image to us
4: um it, it, it is of um uh, uh, two people embracing um and they're it's a very kind of warlike image now in actual fact I was filming in the summer of 2021 20, uh, and I was I'm, I'm, and my film alchemy uh, is coming out next month um, so this is part of that project mm. but this 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 scene was filmed in um, what had just been um, a huge fire in the Killarney National Park that destroyed a huge area of it. So it fitted in with the, the my, my thematics for what I was doing. But what I hadn't really taken into account was when we actually got there and, and, and you know, they kind of dirtied themselves up with the charcoal. Was that it looked so warlike in this yeah. really burnt environment? And there's, you know, there's intimacy, and it's 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 a really moving image. Yeah, you very know? sad.
0: There's a great sadness about it, a kind of resigned sadness yeah. about it. Um, is within it. Yes, uh, We're well, lovely to speak with you this evening, Claire, and hope that the exhibition goes very well for you uh, in in uh, Athlone. That's Claire Langan speaking to us about her exhibition at the Gates of Silent Memory. It's at the Lewin Gallery in Athlone from Saturday the 18th of February, and it runs right through until the 20th of April, Athlone, Athlone Arts and Tourism for full details on that is.